Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Metal Mike, and in this episode we hear from the killer guitar player from Dio and many other projects, Craig Goldie. We go in depth about his time in Dio, his friendship with Ronnie, their songwriting process, and so much more. If you're a Dio fan, you do not want to miss any of this. Hey, do you like the content on this channel? Well, please like and subscribe, and consider becoming a supporter through Anchor. There's a link in the description below. Now here's Craig. Check it out. Well, Craig, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast, man. How you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you, man. It's good to hear your voice. Good to talk to you. Yeah, same here, same here. So, Craig, what's going on in your world? You working on anything new at the moment? Uh, there's quite a few things going on. Um, uh, uh, mostly, it's slowing me down a little bit. I had a bit of an injury from a car accident a while ago, and so it's just kind of slowing me down a bit. And so, little by little, things are getting better, and so I'm going to be able to start moving a lot quicker. So, some of the stuff has really gotten in the way and limited my ability to do stuff. So, there's going to be some new music. And all sorts of stuff coming up pretty soon. Awesome. Um, under what umbrella is this music going to be under? Well, that's another thing. I'm currently um, working some things out because um, it's going to be stuff. It's all going to be different than I've done before. When do you expect to release this material? Uh, well, that also depends on uh, how quickly I recover. Um, but I'm hoping no later than, let's say, uh, early next year. Cool. Now, when you say different, like, can you elaborate a little bit, like, it, like a different style of music than you usually play? Uh, a, a, a little bit of it. it. It'll be. It won't be. I won't be under contract with somebody else. Okay. That basically cares but doesn't care. You know, mm-hmm. God bless all the. You know, God bless everybody that I've worked with before, and um, not necessarily members because everybody I've worked with, as far as writing, recording. Uh, playing, have all been great. You know, the Frontiers have been great. Everybody's been great. But right now, I just need a little bit more freedom to do some stuff. Not necessarily that it's going to be a solo thing, because I, I, I can do a lot of stuff on my own, but I, I prefer to collaborate. I just don't want to be under contract uh, to the point where it's just, you know, eating off of the crumbs that fall off of other people's tables while I'm being pressured to finish. Yeah. That makes sense, man, and uh, that sounds cool. So I'm looking forward to hear it. Well, thank you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that came out that was new was uh, Resurrection King, Skygazer. That was the, your second album, yeah. and that came out over the summer. It's got Vinny Apice, Chaz West. It was great metal that's got a, a D.O. vibe to it. What can you tell us about it? Uh, well, that was, uh, that was in the making for a while. There was a few things that got in the way, but, just, you know, but ultimately... What I've found is that um, when life forces me down a path that I don't prefer, once the dust settles and I'm able to look back and connect the dots, I actually find myself in a place uh, better than originally planned for. Mm -hmm. So even though the second album took a little while longer than it should have, it came out better than it would have, Mm. if not for the delay. That, you know, it's always those things that the unwelcome guests, you know, delays, 
um, pain, right. <laughs> you know, uh, obstacles, problems. But most of the times, it's like a big sifter. You know, there's, there's so many times in my life I can look back and connect the dots and actually say out loud, you know, with all conviction, I'm glad that bad thing happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so many good things, you know, if that, if that thing didn't, if, if that didn't fall apart, then this thing never would have happened. And, and it's so much better than this is so much better than that would have been. So I just have learned to just kind of try, at least I'm trying to kind of just go as, you know, take it as it goes. Yeah. So this, this album, Skygazer, um, took a while for it to come out. But um, it, it, I think it, it's a worthy, you know, like sometimes movies, you know, the part two is never as good as the original movie. Yeah, so this right. one is a pretty good part two. Definitely, man. And there's, there's some great tracks on there. Like when I listen to like a track like World's on Fire, a riff like that, you know, is very reminiscent of Dio. And when you write a riff like that, do you think of him? Like sometimes you think of, geez, Ronnie would have, what, what, what would Ronnie have done on a, a riff like this? Does that come to your mind? A lot of times. Fortunately and unfortunately, on that particular riff I didn't write. There's, that's one of the things I like about the Resurrection Kings project because I don't write everything. Mm, okay. And uh, it's a it's a collaborative from top to bottom. You know, you have to get songs approved by the label. Some songs you don't write at all. Sometimes you do. Sometimes we rewrite some stuff. Some songs I wrote by myself. Sometimes I, I collaborate. Some songs, you know, me and Vinny were actually able to write. You know, where he'd send me a, a, a groove, and as soon as I hear him play drums, all of a sudden an idea would spark, and so we got a couple of songs like that on there. So there was some really good, you know things like that uh so you know it was uh now i forget the original question <laughs> <laughs> well well let's go back to it so okay so maybe that song might not be the greatest example but there's got to be riffs that you've oh, written that, that was that wasn't my riff that yeah. wasn't my riff Sorry. but you probably have written riffs where you'd say like wow this is this is a total deal riff i could totally picture ronnie doing this on it sometimes like time like now anyways uh, because he's no longer with us I would always come up with riffs, and then before I would do anything with them, I'd play them, I'd play them for him. Even when he was in different bands, because him and I always had plans to do stuff together. Mm -hmm. And so, like even when he was in Heaven and Hell, he would actually call me at home and read me his lyrics from Heaven and Hell. Oh wow! And he goes, Goldie, Goldie, I thought of you, you know, because him and I—that's how him and I met. Mm -hmm. Was the auditions for Rough Cut. And, it, and the very first thing I got a chance to talk to him about was how great I thought his lyrics were. And I told him, uh, you know, because at that time, everybody was a fan of Ronnie Dean's deal because he was the sure. producer of Rough Cut. Jake just left and joined Ozzy, and now there's an opening for it. So everybody's favorite singer was Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> so when I walk in and I say, you know, my favorite singer, he's, you know, this, yeah, right. But he, he could tell it was true. And um, so, and I, you know, there's, I told him that I would learn his melody lines on guitar and I was so surprised how high up the neck it was because his voice was so thick uh -huh. you know somebody you know who plays guitar would understand this on the high E string on the tw of 10th fret it's called the D you know now um, the Jafria song Coddle the Heart David Glenn Isley hits that D and it sounds like it's up in the stratosphere uh -huh. but at the end of Don't Talk to Strangers Ronnie actually hits an E down to a D and it sounds much lower Huh, isn't that wild? But he actually begins higher and ends at the same spot, but it sounds, because he's so thick, it doesn't sound like it's in the stratosphere. 
that used to really stump me because I, I'd be looking for lower notes and, and I'm like, couldn't be this high, couldn't be this note. And then all of a sudden I'm going, oh my God, it's this note. <laughs> and so, and he laughed. But then we started talking about how his lyrics, you know, I could tell that he would say one thing and mean another. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, and I would say, well, you know, you would pick these subjects that had two opposing sides, but somehow you would unify them. And then it would be with this really dark sound and dark theme, but with a positive message. And he would grab my arm and say, yeah, that's right. And I didn't realize that right then we had created, I'm getting chills, we had created a special friendship that would last for over 30 years. And one of those special parts about that friendship was his lyrics. So he would always test me when we would work together. What do you think this means? And I would say, oh, I think it means this. Or even before I got in the band, like um, just before both um, Last in Line and Sacred Heart came out, a lot of times me and Ronnie, we had like a drop everything kind of relationship. It was funny. If, if we ended up, at, there was a place called the Country Club in California, in L.A., where a lot of bands would play. And a lot of national acts would go there because the stage was big enough and the venue was big enough to, to handle it. And sometimes me and Ronnie would end up being at the same concert. We didn't plan on it. We just were. We'd run into each other and we'd go, oh, hey. So by the time the concert was, was over, Wendy was in a different car with my date and I was in a car with Ronnie on the way to the after party, but we'd stop at the, at the, uh, at the Niji office so he could play me the new songs. And, and asked me what I thought he was saying. And every single time, it, well, I think it sounds like you're saying this. You're saying that, but it really seems like you're telling people this. And he grabs my arm and goes, that's right. You know, <laughs> and it was just one of those things, you know. So uh, working with him, I also realized, you know, how important groove was and stuff like that. So um, for you to say stuff like this is something that Ronnie would be proud of. Anytime anybody tells me that, it's, that's a great thing because I would always gauge what it was, you know, that I that I was doing musically by what he would say, and so I would always run my ideas through him first. Then, if he said whatever he said no to, that's what I was I would use for other projects. So I would keep off whatever he said yes, even if we didn't use it. If he said yes, that stayed with him. When it became time for you to join the band, I mean, you guys already had a friendship. Did you have to audition, or was it just like, Craig, it's your time to get in the band? How did it all come together? That actually also was birthed during the demo recordings for Rough Cut. One night, because him and I, we just liked hanging out together. There was so many times, there was just the two of us at his home watching old rainbow videos, you know, and then it'd get too late. He'd, you know, he'd bring out a mattress and put sheets and blankets and pillows tuck me like a father to a child and give me headphones so I could listen to the Holy Diver album before it was even done. Wow. And then, uh, so late nights, you know, he was the, of the same mind. Um, you don't stop because you're tired. You stop when it's done. Mm -hmm. So we'd be working late. And um, back in those days, you know, Sound City was, you know, you know they made, a, they made a, a big documentary about all the stuff that happened in that studio. One of the things that happened in that studio was Ronnie's promise to me that if Vivian ever didn't work out, I'd be his first choice because he got so impressed with how easy and how wonderful it was for us to work together. Wow. That's amazing, man. So when this finally happens, how long did you have to learn the set list? We had six rehearsals. Okay. That was it. 
because he knew I knew the songs. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I really needed to learn was the medleys and how they, if they extended stuff or changed things, you know, which he, he liked to do live to make, you know, he liked to change things up. There was only six rehearsals. You know, it's funny. I, before our interview a couple nights ago, I watched the uh, performance. That's in, it's it's pretty. I think it was an official release. It was in, in Philadelphia, and you're playing Sacred Heart, and it's like you've got the dragon in this giant. I mean, it's a mammoth stage. I mean, when you finally hit that stage, I mean, it had to be surreal. Here you are, you know, playing with one of your idols, your friend Ronnie James Dio, but then you've got this just whole thing that's going on on stage it just had to have been surreal for you completely from t top to bottom you know it was just a headlining stage 20,000 seat arenas every night um i didn't know what to do with myself at first because being an opening act you know you don't have that much room and suddenly it's almost like you know it's almost like you have a city block <laughs> right. you know, to run around you know i'm like what the heck am i going to do with this you know uh, well, we, you know, eventually we found our way because he did pull a couple of um, rehearsals that had, had that kind of size stage so I could get used to it. And um, there was a couple of things that he wanted to work out, too, so it wasn't just for me. So it made me feel better that, you know, it was like, God, you're going to spend all this money just for me? I don't think so. He's like, no, 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 don't worry, Goldie. We got other stuff we got to figure out, so don't worry about it. But, yes, we want to make sure, you know, you're comfortable because, you know, he knew that I cared so much that I could easily just tear myself into a total, a total standstill. <laughs> what did you do with the solos? Because I'll be honest, I'm, I'm more of a song guy than a solo guy. Uh, did you play them verbatim or did you put your own spin on them like Adrian solos? A, a little bit of, a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. Cause there was, I wanted to be able to show people that I could play Vivian solos but at the same time, I, I wanted to interpret them the way I thought, just the way I thought it sounded cool, because they were great as they were. So they were basically, note for note, just kind of fudged here and there, mm -hmm. you know, because, number one, to be, to be respectful. Number two, um, people can do just about anything in the studio, but can they do it live? Right. You know, and then, so I wanted to make sure that his studio solos were done live. I wanted to be able to move around while I played them, you know, um, and still sound okay because I've heard so many different uh, recordings of when I was doing really well as far as stage presence, but the audio version wasn't that great. <laughs> but because they were mixed together, you know, it was forgiven because people were seeing it. So what they saw, they, they, they it was okay because what they heard and what they saw kind of went together. Yes. But if it, it but if, but when the live recordings were minus the video, all of a sudden it's like, what the heck is that? That's horrible. <laughs> so I had to learn how to try to do both, you know. So it was a good learning experience that way too. You seem like you got uh, pretty comfortable pretty fast because I mean you're you're swinging your guitar around, going pretty crazy uh, on that Philadelphia performance. So at that point, you must have been getting pretty comfortable. Well, I was, tr I was trying because at the time, you know, when Eddie Van Halen came out, he changed everything. Mm -hmm. You know, the stage presence, everything. And so it was like, man, you know, I really have to up my game, you know, if I'm going to be even remotely remembered. Um, and like you said, it was a dream come true being in that band and with that stage and that 18-foot fire-breathing dragon and lasers and explosions. <laughs> it's and crazy. Stuff. So, hey, I got to ask you, did this, the dragon ever malfunction? 
Yes. In fact, the night we recorded the, the, the video, they had to they had to dub in the fire because for some reason it wasn't working that night. No, 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 it wasn't that. Oh, the fire marshal wouldn't let us use it that night. Oh. Every every concert, the fire marshal would come in and have to see, you know, how it would work. And sometimes it would work perfectly, and other times it would kind of fall out like lava, and the stage was covered with a carpet. So sometimes while I was on stage, I actually had to stomp the fire out <laughs> <laughs> while I'm playing. So it, it, it was one of those, it was one of those, and the fire marshal said we couldn't use it, you know, but it was a real fire-breathing dragon. I mean, even though they had to overdub it for that concert, it was only because we were told we couldn't use it, not because it didn't actually do its job. I mean, there's lots of people out there, you know, through the years that were actually at concerts where that fire came out. And, I mean, it was real, and it was and it was hot. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, in that video and, and many videos for Dio after that, I mean, you're playing BC Riches. Was that your acts of choice in the 80s? Yeah, because at first um, I wanted to also try to come up with, you know, a different type of looking guitar, and that started when I was in Jafria, because um, uh, Greg, uh, we had an investor at the time, before we got a record deal, and, and Greg said, um, pick out a guitar, and I was in Guitar Center, and I looked up, and I saw this purple warlock on the wall, and I said, what is that? And that was it, you know, and um, it took a while to get those things to sound right, and um then when they finally did, they stopped making them out of wood. <laughs> so we had to, I don't know why they did that. You know, you know, they, you would think that, you know, corkboard and wood, you know, aren't the same. <laughs> right. Everybody, but everybody should know that. You know. Yeah, I think most so, people that talk about the warlocks is they they like the look better than the sound, and then maybe in the studio they wouldn't use a warlock; they'd use you know something else. Well, in the beginning, that's it was great because Bernie Rico he would meet with his artists. Him and I became friends. He was a great guy. I'd come up to the, you know, I'd come up to the to the um, to the warehouse where they would make them and store them and, and, and ship them out, and we'd hang out and talk. And you know, and he made them out of the you know, Ronnie did a great thing for me. Um, we had he owned the building right next door to the to the guitar center at one point mm-hmm. uh, before it was all that that whole bit was Guitar Center there on Hollywood. And so we would use it as rehearsals. And uh, Ronnie said, okay, you know, just go at it. So he gave me a couple of days where everybody would come in from BC Rich and say, this kind of wood, this kind of pickup, this kind of chrome, this kind of fretboard. So we tried to find the right combination. And so we found the right combination, uh, except at one point, Ronnie only wanted me to use Marshall GCM 800s and not the modified head, so that created a problem. Mm-hmm. Just when we found a really good sound, because you can hear it on the studio version of "Time to Burn," that very first beginning thing. You know, there's chunks on the A string. It's just one single chunk, but it sounds percussive. It's chunk, chunk, chunk instead of fa, fa, fa. Mm-hmm. You know, and I couldn't get anything but a fa out of a Marshall head that wasn't modified. So that created a very big stumbling block. But eventually, you know, Magica, and from that point on, you know, at least Magica, I was able to pick, you know, the studio version of Time to Burn and Magica, I was able to pick my own amp. The other ones, Ronnie was picking for me. 
Gotcha, gotcha. When you talk about studio work, so obviously you get done with the Sacred Heart tour and you guys do Dream Evil. Was so being that you guys have you'd known them for a long time, was this natural to just to go and start writing together, or was it intimidating? What was the what were you feeling? Well, the very first time we wrote, like it you know, was that uh, time to burn, and it was in the studio, so it was pretty quick. And him and I had worked together in Rough Cut, um, where we had to write stuff together, um, because certain parts weren't working, Mm -hmm. so we knew that we could write together, but a full album was a different story. So he came to me and said, oh, and by the way, going back to the B.C. Rich thing real quick, um, that's how we finally found out how a, how we made a Warlock sound good, is we discovered the right combination, mm-hmm. just, in case, just in case that got, cause you, but when I rejoined the band just prior to the, um, the uh, Master of the Moon album, mm-hmm. uh, I was using warlocks again and those are the ones that came with like corkboard or something and it was i couldn't get a sound oh, out of them yeah crazy sorry sorry no so, problem you know, the warlocks sound good they, they but you know it was you got you had to have a special thing with them but this as far as riding with ronnie he said um this is how we do things him and jimmy would work together first then they would bring in viv and then they would bring in the rest of the band and he said, so I advise you to just come up with as many ideas as you can while me and Jimmy work together. And I said, fine. So apparently at that time, you know, Jimmy was kind of upset because he was real close with Viv. And he was just kind of kind of bummed out a little bit. Sure. So he, Ronnie called me one day and says, I guess Jimmy's really not into this right now. So you're up, kid. And by that time, I had stored up like 136 ideas. <laughs> so him and I just went through through our cassettes back then we used cassettes and we just picked all the cool song ideas we liked the trouble was narrowing them down to nine that was the trouble Mm -hmm. it seems like the vibe of rainbow is kind of coming out more than than previous albums and i know obviously you were a big fan of rainbow was that you bringing that out or was it ronnie saying hey let's kind of revisit some of these riffs so where did that come from it, I think it was a little bit of both. At first, it was because that's just how I, that's just where I was coming from. You know, it was more of a Blackmore, like the school, the Blackmore school of guitar. Sure. And, um, and that which came with understanding how he worked with Ronnie as a vocalist. So we automatically knew how to fit. And then Ronnie was saying, you know, okay, well, all right. Let's do this because it, it didn't to him that was part of his history, and so he he could have easily said, I, 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 "No, you don't, Goldie. <laughs> you know, no more Blackmore stuff in Deal. We're not doing Blackmore stuff in Deal." He liked it because it, it just was reminiscent of. It wasn't like, you know, you know, in a lot of people say, "Oh, Men on the Silver Mountain was ripped off." You know, that's how they came up with Dream Evil. Mm. Well, in a way. It's not a rip-off. I mean, Richie Blackmore even, you know, he, he admits to him ripping off a lot of songs. You know, one of them was Burn. It was a, his, his grandma's favorite band, you know, was playing a song uh, called Fascinating Rhythm. And that's where the song, the riff Burn came from. It was from an old, you know, <laughs> big band song called Fascinating Rhythm. And so he just kind of turned it into a heavy metal riff. You know, so it's not like... But it's note for note. But what I wanted to do is I thought the riff for Man on the Silver Mountain was so cool 
you know, I just thought I'll try to surprise Ronnie with one of my own. Mm-hmm. And when he heard that riff, he goes, now that's a riff. He goes, that's my kind of riff. He goes, I've always wanted to have a man on the Silver Mountain of my own. And so <laughs> we just said, hey, let's do it. You know? Yeah, you're, that was one I had written down. Like Dream Evil definitely has a bit of that vibe. And I think Overlove does as well. Uh, the whole album has a bit of a Blackmore feel, rainbow feel to it. And, yeah. and that's why there's a keyboard solo in there, too. Mm-hmm. And I remember Ronnie looking at me going, are you sure about this, Colby? Yeah, that was that was really cool because when when Claude came up with that keyboard solo, it was like yeah. Then Ronnie was like yeah, okay, let's do this because that was going to be our first epic that we ever wrote together. It was all the full sail away, and so Ronnie wanted to make sure that nothing slipped in that, that he didn't approve of. So it was you know I really had you know they talk about pick your battles you know because I was a new guy and you know here I am trying to set deal precedent you know. Sort <laughs> the keyboard solo, you know. But because we were friends, and because he knew where it was coming from, it had nothing to do with self glorification. It had to do with, you know, learning from him that the song will tell you what it means. And if you listen to the song, it'll tell you what it means. And I learned that from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the greatest things of all was, where you know, people often write a song, and then when when they're listening back, they they stop and go, okay, we need something here, and they write for something for there and then they move on from there instead of going back to the beginning that's where a lot of people go wrong because mm-hmm. they're writing from that point on with the wrong momentum built up they got to go back to the beginning and wait till you get to that spot and then if that new part works you keep it if not you go back to the beginning until you you know the song will tell you what it means but you don't move on any further until you go back to the beginning and then you keep going until you're at the end. And it's a very tedious pro- process. But thank God for those 136 ideas. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that, that's an interesting point of view. I like that. And, you know, I was going to say the singles on this album are, are some of Dio's best, in my opinion. I think uh, Could Have Been a Dreamer and All the Fools Sailed Away are just amazing tunes, amazing singles. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. After the tour of this album... You're not in the band, uh, you know, for a, until you come back there around Magica. Why were you out of the band? Well, someday I'll tell that story. Okay. Um, it's just, it's, um, it's not. I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't because, hey, thanks, Ronnie, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. That was not it at all. Mm-hmm. I had no intentions of leaving whatsoever, and um, something happened. But we eventually we stayed friends and we got over it, and that's why he asked me back. Gotcha. And uh, but at some point, I'll tell that story. But the reason why I say at some point is because it's something that needs to be told when I'm when I know not that I can't trust you or anything. It's just that I need to be able to tell it a certain way because I know what I did wrong and I know what I did right and I know what he did wrong and I know what he did right. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be taking pot shots at a dead man. Yep. You know, it's just going to be answering the question once and for all in the way it needs to be told because it, it's a it's a very it ran deep, mm-hmm. and uh, there, I mean, as, he was he was and still is my favorite singer. It was a dream come true. And I was in his band. We had an album out. We had a hit song. Uh, the tour was going great. So what in the world could possibly make me leave? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it was especially when I had no, I had no plans of leaving whatsoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very 
it's a, it's a mystery to most fans, but it's definitely not because I thought, oh, I'm going to do a solo album. I'm great. Look at me, everybody. Right, right. <laughs> no, that's no problem, man. And so while you're out of the band, you're are you keeping up with what he's doing? So like, what did you think of uh, like Lock Up the Wolves? Yeah, I mean, I liked all that stuff. I mm-hmm. thought Rowan was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, in fact, I was a little jealous because, I mean, I know that he said to me on the se- for the second album, he's going to let me go a little bit more wild because he knows what I'm capable of, and he felt like he was holding me back. And I was like, no, you know, I didn't think you held me back. You know, maybe the, the choice of amp- amps, you know, could have been better. Right. As we, we were working for the, on the second album when it, when it all occurred. Sure. It was just, um, it, but now I understand it. You know, he, he was, most of it, most of it comes back to, uh, he was keeping me in learning mode. There was a day a long, a while, while back ago, right in front of his best friend during one of our rehearsals. He turned to me and he said, Goldie, I want to, I want to pass the torch on to you, kid. And we looked, me and his best friend looked at each other and we were like, whoa, do you know what that means? I go, yeah. And I really knew what it meant, but not fully until even now, you know, what he really meant by that. He was teaching me. He wasn't letting me fly. Mm-hmm. Rowan had it all together. Doug had it all together. Tracy G, like I said in, the, in my comments on your interview with him, mm-hmm. he brought a whole new world mm-hmm. to DL. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, every guitar player. Rowan was amazing. Doug was amazing. And they all had their own sound, and they all had their own way right then and there. But with me, Ronnie saw something, I guess, you know, that, that um, like, if you listen to that, the, the guitar solo, depending on which one you get from Naked in the Rain on the Dream Eagle tour, mm-hmm. that was supposed to be for Headbangers Ball, which it did, but, I mean, nowadays there's no more Headbangers Ball. I think right. they're bringing it back. But Ronnie says something at the end of that, almost like a, almost like a message from the grave now, you know, where he says, you know, that he's looking forward to me being the leader of my own band someday. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was still in the band. He was grooming me to be a leader. And so for me being in Dio, being groomed for a leader meant a totally different set of circumstances than me being the guitar player who is meant to follow. That's very cool. You you brought up the the video of Tracy G. We'll we'll, we'll get the listeners kind of on board with what we're talking about. So I had a video clip out there that said that you know basically that Tracy G. was offered a rhythm player role when you were coming back in the band, and, and he he just said he couldn't do it because he he wasn't a crack Goldie fan. That, that's kind of the, the gist of what he was saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of clickbaitish, Craig. I'm sorry, but um. No, no, no. Tell, no, tell I'm the glad story. You said it. Yeah, no, tell the, the truth. Yeah, what's your what's no your side of the story? Because so he he looks at it as one way, and he told it one way. Do you tell it the same way? Well, uh, what I wrote in the comment section was true. I mean, there was a little more to it, but I wanted to keep it flattering, mm-hmm. but keep it true. Because Ronnie did at one point, Ronnie did actually think that having a two guitar band would be kind of cool, and he yeah. by no means meant that. Um, Tracy was going to be second guitar and a rhythm only. Mm-hmm. No way. I know Ronnie. He wouldn't have said, dude, you're second to Craig. He wouldn't have put it that way because it wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter what the, even if the record company wanted it to be that way, Ronnie would have said yes to them, but it wouldn't have come out that way. The record wouldn't have come out that way because like I said, 
you know, Tracy would have done what Tracy does best. He writes in solos. He's a great writer. I mean, the guy comes up with stuff that is just like out of this world, you know, and a lot of the fans liked that stuff, but some people were getting, you know, they, they were tired of the sound effects. They wanted the, you know, the, 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 the Stargazer solo like it is on the album. And people were starting to miss that. You know, they wanted to have it both ways. They wanted Ronnie to do something different, but they also wanted him to do something the same. So it was like, you know, Ronnie was stuck in a hard place, you know, so he says, let's bring Craig back, but I don't want to lose what I've got with Tracy, is basically what he's trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I I love what Tracy brought to the band. I was jealous what Rowan and Doug and them brought to the band because they were doing all sorts of cool stuff that I wanted to get into Mm -hmm. that Ronnie said no, but now I know why he said no. But, you know, that's neither here nor there when it comes to, you know, this decision that was really up to Tracy. He was not offered a rhythm guitar player second to Craig gig, no matter what he says. If he says that, it's because maybe he heard it wrong, misunderstood it, or was told something different from somebody else, but that was not the deal. Mm-hmm. So basically what you're saying is you are a, you are a Tracy G fan, is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, big time. big time. You know, I can understand it, you know, because, you know, and I understand why, you know, some people think, badly of me, you know, because unfortunately, there's a, so many videos out there when Ronnie was doing smaller um, gigs, and even when we were opening up for like Alice Cooper and, and opening up for Iron Maiden, mm-hmm. um, the promoters would provide the backline because we didn't have the same budget before where we could bring our own gear with us. So I didn't have the kind of um, guitar processor that I needed that if I met, no matter what amp I got, you know, I would be able to make it sound good because I just run it through the clean channel. A lot of guys had that. It was kind of a hit and miss because it had to be a worldwide thing because if they saw it in your carry-on, they might actually tell you you can't get on the plane with it because they don't understand what the hell it is, the electronics of it. Sure. That was before 9-11. Right, right. And so it was just weird, you know. So it was it was really a gamble. So we'd show up at these gigs with a you know a fucking uh, just five stacks of Marshalls, you know, a wall of Marshalls, and it looked so so impressive. But it it was cheap. They got it real cheap, and it sounded like shit. So when you have a warlock that's made out of fucking cork board, <laughs> you know, that they send you like just two days before you go out on tour. But you find an amp that you can make it sound good, but that amp isn't on. They decided to save money and not provide you with that amp. It sounds like shit. And there's times when, if I had heard Craig Goldie for the first time with that sound and that performance, I would think Craig Goldie sucks too. But there's other stuff out there where I actually have the guitar and the amp that I chose, and I sound good. But there's just there's just too many hit and misses out there. Where, you know, you, you you if you type in Doug, you're gonna every every fucking video that pops up is gonna sound good. You type you, you type in Tracy G, you type in Rowan, you type in Richie Blackmore, you type in Tony Iommi, you type in Eve Momstein, George Lynch. No matter who you type in, every single fucking video is gonna sound good, unless it's just poorly recorded on a on a video on a cell phone right right but for me it's 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 a hit and miss and that's the part that really 
chaps my ass because I was not in control. Right. If I was in more control, I would have not gone on until they got me the right amp. Mm-hmm. And then I would have had all, you know, then it would have been no problem. So we get past Strange Highways and we get past uh, Angry Machines. So you're back for Magicka. Is the thought process like we're going to bring back kind of the classic Dio sound that people remember? Yes. And I just got through doing a solo album where we strung the whole album together like the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album. So Ronnie wanted to do that with Magicka. Because mm-hmm. since I had to do it, we were able to do it in a digital format. So him and I actually were writing those in-between parts, too, as, as well as the songs. And we were writing as he was writing the story, because the story really hadn't, wasn't finished yet. And, and, but Ronnie wanted to do a concept album way back. I remember after the Dream Evil tour, it was just Ronnie and I again at a, one of his favorite Indian restaurants. We were sitting there talking, and he said he wants to do a concept album. And I think he wanted to do that for album number two. Mm. You know, the, the follow-up to Dream Evil. That's how long he's been wanting to do one. Yeah, and I think he's a perfect artist to do one with the kind of subject matter that he covers and you know the kind of music that he does. I think it fits perfect for a concept. Especially with that kind of mind, yeah, the mind he has and the things he comes up with and the way he sees the world and the way he twists and turns things around, you know, is just something, you know, just he's the first and last of his kind. Yeah. I'll tell you, man, one of my favorite Dio albums of all time is, is Master of the Moon. I think Master of the Moon kicks major ass songs and there's really? so many cool wow. tunes there's so many cool tunes on there i mean obviously like one more for the road is like a classic you know dio type of a song but then there's these like chuggy riffs like shivers and death by love i think those songs are just like hidden gems on that album i love those tunes wow well thank you for that yeah i mean master of the moon was a was a a little bit of a it was it was it was a weird time it was a, definitely a weird time and once again you know, the amp and the guitar that I wanted to use was a no. So we actually had to use borrowed amps and borrowed guitars, of which the guitars that were that were given the okay did not have a locking system on them. So I literally had to tune every 45 minutes for the whole entire album. I can only play 45 minutes before the guitar would go out of tune, hmm. and I'd have to sit there for another 20 minutes until that fucker would get in tune and I'd play for another 45 minutes and I'd have to stop it fucking sucked oh my god big time so there was just a little bit of that going on you know and it was just like so much time being wasted by that and it was just it was just outrageous but we got through it and we worked late nights and got through it and everything and there was so many great songs on that album I just wish that it had you know we had the opportunity you know to to get I didn't see anything wrong with using the same guitar and amp for Magicka for Master of the Moon. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, it was like, no. He, he's, you know, I don't know what it was. <laughs> he just said no. And that was it. You know, I was like, okay. <laughs> it was crazy. What's your favorite album that you worked on with, with Ronnie? Um, actually, there's moments of everything are my favorite. It's mm-hmm. kind of like saying which you had only one thing to choose, which would you choose, to inhale or exhale, which would be an impossible choice to make. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got you, I got you. <laughs> um, when it comes to Dio Disciples, are, are there any more shows on the horizon, anything going on in that camp? Oh, I'm sure we'll probably do some more concerts and stuff like that, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure. But right now, my, my particular injury, you know, I'd have to wait until I can actually, you know, go and do tours again so they might 
if they do it, you know, I hope they, I hope they actually bring. I think it would be great because Rowan's done a couple of gigs like that, and he, they loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, I say bring Doug and Tracy G and Rowan in there, you know, and have them have a go at it for a little while. I think that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be cool. Well, when you think back to Ronnie, what's the what's the thing you miss most about him? I'll tell you a story. Um, tell, stop me if you've heard it. I call it the tuna fish sandwich story. Have you ever heard this one? Never heard it. Okay, this will tell you the heart and the mind of Ronnie James Dio. This is what I miss, the, the heart, the most. Uh, when I first joined Rough Cut, I was homeless. I was living in a car to avoid the, uh, the beatings and the surgeries and stitches from my family. And so when I joined Rough Cut, I was still homeless. So I would go from apartment to apartment every other week and live on the couch of the bass player and the next week live on the couch of the drummer. So that one week, you know, I was at one of the guys' houses and um, I made myself a tuna fish sandwich out of a can of tuna that I bought. Well, this guy comes home and throws a fit, says this is his can of tuna, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> right, well, dude, whatever, you know, how much can a can of tuna cost in 1983, yeah, you know? Right. I'll buy you, I'll buy you another can of tuna, you know. But that fit was heard around the world. I didn't say a single thing. But the next day, I'm heading towards, you know, the kitchen, and I look outside the window, and I think I see Ronnie's car. And so I stop, and I wait, and I look, and I sure enough, there's Ronnie and Wendy getting out of the car, both carrying two full bags of groceries. And they walk up the stairs, and they kick the door because they don't have a free hand to knock with. I open up the door. They they storm in, and they slam the, the bags of groceries on the table. They yell at the guy. They say, these are for Craig. Leave them alone. And they stormed out as fast as they stormed in to go back to continue with the Holy Diver recordings. They stopped the Holy Diver recordings to go to the grocery store to pick out four bags of groceries worth of specific items for me for over a can of tuna for me. Now, if that doesn't change the way, if that doesn't change you inside, nothing will. Right. Wow, man. That's that's a cool story. And he did stuff like that all the time for his fans and people in his band. And I mean, he did that kind of, that was just who he was. That wasn't just a one-off thing. I wish it was, <laughs> you know. Because right. <laughs> that would make me more special than everybody else. But I'm not, you know, because he, he loved everybody like that, you know. I'm special in my own way. We all have our own thing. Yep. But Ronnie just had that kind of heart. He knew how to make everybody feel like they were the only ones that mattered. The thing I miss the most is when we worked together like that. Mm-hmm. After the concert, on the, way, on the way to the meet and greets, that was my favorite time. Because mm-hmm. we would walk in together, and we would ignore the, the Playboy Center old-looking girls and go straight to the fat, ugly ones and kiss them and hug them like they were <laughs> long-lost sisters. That's Sit awesome. and talk to them and treat them like a million dollars because they were the ones who always got overlooked. Yep. You know? And we just thought to ourselves, you know, to the, and the, the good-looking, you know, Playboy Bunny girls were pretty pissed off that they weren't getting the attention they deserved. At one point, one of us, you know, at some point, you know, would say, either it would be me or Ronnie, at one point, they would get so irate that we turned to them and say, you know, no, no, nothing against Poison or Motley Crue. We just said, hey, 
don't worry, don't get so upset. Motley Crue and Poison are on their way, you know, and you'll get you'll, you'll get the intention you think you deserve. But right now, these these girls right here are more important to us right now than feeding your ego. You know, you're beautiful on the outside, but just by the actions that you take and, and what you show right now, you're ugly on the inside. I'm sorry to have to tell you that. So we're going to treat the person who's nice, and that and that's this person right here. We're sorry. You know, you can stay if you like, but, you know, or change your attitude, one of the two, because that's what that was about, was that, you know, the, the, the vo he was the voice of the downtrodden, the black sheep of the globe, the secretly hurting. So when these people came to the concerts, they were, they were getting away from their, from their, their hidden secret of pain. They were, they were catapulted into a new dimension, a whole different universe, a whole different world. And so for that amount of time, they forgot all about what it was like to be them because they were a part of something bigger for a while. They see us on stage and they think, wow, those guys are cool looking rock stars. I want to meet them. But when they met us, it's not a rock star that they got. You know, because some people who had the backstage passes to meet Ronnie, it was like the, the golden ticket for, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> right. You know, they had to keep... Really, they had the keys to the kingdom, and they were going to meet the king. And when they did, he turned it all around and blew their minds with kindness. Can mm -hmm. I get you anything? Can I do anything for you? You know, and they were just like blown away. They're like, you know, one minute they're like in total worship of this man, and the next minute they're like, he wants to make me a sandwich. How do I respond to this? <laughs> you know, he wants to he wants to fix me dinner. He wants to get me a drink. You know, I don't I don't know how to how to handle that. It would just blow their mind with kindness. Because back in those days, I mean, you've seen the spreads, you know, where they have all the things, you know, with the little fire underneath, and you open up the lid, and there's like a fucking big giant vat of chicken and another vat of mashed potatoes, another vat of beans and rice and corn and bread and, you know, drinks. And you know what it was like back then. Yeah. So when he says, hey, can I get you anything, that really meant something. Because one night's worth of stuff could feed like a family of 20 for, a, for like four months. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's yeah. I mean, it's cool because what you're saying, it's like it's it's kind of and you, you know you use and you're just kidding, but you use Poison and Motley Crue as an example. But there wasn't a lot of depth coming out of people. You know what I mean? It was a lot of shallowness, and that just shows a lot of character and a lot of depth. What you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, and I, I like Motley Crue and, and Poison. I mean, those guys were nice guys. There was nothing wrong with them. You know, I'm just saying that. You know, the hate. It's not their fault that they have good-looking girls that come to their concerts, and it's not their fault that they're attracted to them. So whatever, so if they give the pretty girls attention, that's just a, a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. However, there's more to it than that for us. But it doesn't mean that those guys lack substance, because Nikki Six is probably one of the most smartest, you know, kindest guys out there. We just, we, but we, he's just not known for it, I guess. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, no, there's, there's no doubt that he's a, a smart dude. There's no doubt about it. And a but I get your point, you know, but, but I understand what you mean. Yeah, at least at that time, that was that was what they were putting out there. Least, there you go. There you go. At least at that time, yeah, it wasn't a stretch to say those things. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, real quick, let's, no, Jafria, we didn't talk a lot about about that. I'll be honest, I never knew a lot about Jafria. I got into music probably about 86 so that's like like i said prime time for me uh getting dream evil and and, and going from there like the, the mid 80s so but strangely enough years later 
um, I got into Angel pretty big. I'm a big Kiss fan. Love Angel as well. And when you were in Drafria, was it ever going to be called Angel? Because I've read some rumors that he thought about calling it Angel at first. Yes, actually, I still have the magazine um, from that, where it was actually called Angel. Mm-hmm. It was reformation of Angel. And then, um, yeah, and then the record company didn't want to do that. And I think there was even some pushback from the, from the other band members. Okay. You know, trying to, you know, so, and like a bunch of idiots, we all went along with Dave Isley said, well, let's just call it Jafria. And we all just went, oh, okay. <laughs> Not knowing. Because after that album went and did as well as it did, you know, God bless Greg. I mean, I love him. We've been talking lately and, mm-hmm. you know, we became friends there for a while again. And, but, uh, you know, he pissed off the record company and we, and we, uh, we almost got dropped off the label. And so we were going to, he was actually going to get kicked out of his own band. No kidding. But the, the two managers of the band, one was an album promoter, one was a record promoter. And so the record promoter and I were close, and he came over to me and he says, well, you can do whatever you want, but just remember, if, if, if you kick anybody out of the band, you're starting all over. And I'm like, what? Because it doesn't matter if you have a hit song, doesn't matter what you did. As soon as you come up with a new name and a new lineup, you're starting all over from scratch. I'm like, wow. So Dave was kind of like, you know, Greg's right-hand man, and um, Greg was like putting Dave in a tough spot because Dave liked some of my ideas and wanted to use them for the second album, and Greg was not digging on that. Mm-hmm. So luckily, I, I got asked to do the uh, hearing aid project where I saw Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo and they were at the time forming a band together and at the time they had somebody but I just said you know just keep me in mind and sure enough I got the call and I was off out of Jafria and working with Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo but Jafria was a good album it was known for that ballad but there is some pretty good rock songs on there mm-hmm yeah, and it's definitely different than Dio, obviously. <laughs> definitely. And I understand that's why a lot of Dio fans were like going, dude, where's this guy coming from? You know, I mean, Jafria, you know, they thought I was a total pussy, you know, <laughs> walking into a, you know, an MMA match, you know. This guy's going to get his ass whipped, you know. This guy's got no business being here, but they didn't know what was inside me. They didn't know what started the whole thing. Richie Blackmore started the whole thing. hmm and Ronnie James Dio was just, you know, like the fucking fuel that, I mean, he's the one that started that. When you go back to the first Rainbow album and you listen to the way he says higher and fire at the end of uh, 16th century green sleeves, that's where the heavy metal voice started. Mm-hmm. Nobody had that tone, but suddenly everybody wanted that tone. Go back and listen to the 16th century green sleeves and at the very end of the song where he's saying, hang them higher. Put him in the fire. The way he says higher and fire, that started it all. And then with Richie Blackmore and him together, and then when you listen to songs like Lonely is the Word from the first Black Sabbath album, it's like, dude, where did this guy come from? Mm-hmm. And so when those when that happened, it was like that became such a big part of me. And nobody knew that coming from Jafria, that was what my favorite type of stuff. It was almost like I don't I don't put myself in the same arena as Bruce Lee, but it's just as silly. Bruce Lee was Cato on the Green Hornet episodes right. of Batman. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to start somewhere. 
So that was my Cato. Jafria was my Cato. <laughs> yes. And then, then you're full on Bruce Lee when, when you get into deal. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get in the minds of their head, you know, in their, in their heads, like, what the hell is Cato doing in Dio, like you just said, you know? <laughs> you know, this is not the Green Hornet, you know? What the fuck? <laughs> you know, but eventually people got it, you know, and, and, and it's just the way it is. It's just like Ronnie got flipped off when he joined Ozzy. I mean, when he joined Sabbath because people loved Ozzy. Yep. People actually hated Ronnie. I was, I couldn't even, I, I almost got into fights with people. Me and Ronnie would go out to bars together, just hang out and have a couple of beers and talk. And I'd hear somebody grumbling under their, under their breath about Ozzy rules and DL sucks. And I was ready to fucking put their face in the fucking cement. <laughs> and Ronnie's like, Goldie, Goldie, stop, stop, don't, don't, don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Let him go. I'm go but they're seeing stuff about you. I go, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just let it go. Let him go. Like, okay. <laughs> I, I just, you know, and then I got a taste of my own medicine, you know, because people hated me, you know, mm. and then, but other people liked me. It was just was one of those things. Yeah, and once again, for me, you know, it's all relative to when you get into it. Like I said, I, when I got into music, and you know, strangely enough, people will probably scream at the the their their phone or, or iPad when they listen to this. But I I wasn't very <laughs> familiar with the first couple Dio albums. You know what I mean? They just they missed my radar. I think Sacred Heart might have been the first one I ever bought, and then Dream Evil was the next one I bought. So I I probably didn't get into those first Dio albums until later on. You know what I mean? It, and it happened with a lot of bands. You know, right. I, it's 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 all about. It's right. all relative when you when you get into music, you know, you're watching MTV, what you saw at that point, and it's just kind of the way it works, you know? Yep, you're right about that. Well, hey, brother, it's, right. it's been awesome talking with you. I appreciate all the, the stories. It's, it's been a great conversation. Anything you want to say to your fans out there in closing? Uh, well, just that um, dreams come true. When a pure heart makes a wish and leaves no stone unturned, something magical will happen regardless of what you believe. And um, that's the whole key is leaving no stone unturned. Because there's people out there that have a gift and they deserve to operate at their fullest potential and be satisfied with their life. In fact, everybody deserves to be able to operate at their fullest potential and be able to be satisfied with their lives. And so don't, some people have it and some people don't, you know. Some people are meant to be the next Eddie Van Halen and some people aren't. Right. You know, some people love Billy Gibbons, he's nowhere near the technical, you know, ability that Eddie had. Same thing with, with um, uh, Angus Young. You know, if you put Angus Young and Eddie Van Halen in two separate metal cages, Eddie Van Halen's going to break out just by playing his guitar. They're going to need a fucking saw in the, in, the, in the claws of life to pull, you know, Angus out. But <laughs> people still love him. Yeah. You know, just be true to yourself. And what I call, don't be a thumb who wants to be an eye. You know, because the eyes get all the attention and the thumbs don't. But if, but if my thumb argued with me, if my thumb had a brain and an attitude and a mind of its own, if I was thirsty and I was reaching for a glass of water, I wouldn't be able to pick it up because my thumb wanted to be an eye instead. So be true to yourself. There's nothing wrong, you know, because those guys, the thumbs of life, <laughs> they're the ones that make the world go around. They're the true rock stars. They're the true celebrities. Everybody's, nobody's better than anybody else. Just know your worth. Know your worth. Be satisfied with who you are and be the best you you can possibly be. You know, and if it means being a musician or if it means being a janitor or if it means being the president of the United States or if it means being, you know, um, sitting behind a desk, you know, in an office, it doesn't matter. Just be the best you can be. And then 
you know, you deserve to operate, you still deserve to operate at your fullest potential and be satisfied with your life. And that's going to be one of the programs that I'm coming out with, actually, is to be able to have an open door policy for people to come, to be able to get a hold of me and get the kind of help they're looking for because they're one of the truly gifted that are, that are being held back. Wow. And that day is going to come to an end. That day will come to an end. Man, you... Craig, you got me all pumped up, man. I'm ready to take over the world. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got me going the same way, man. Thank you, buddy. I hope we, we can do a, We can do this some more. You're great. Yeah, man. This is this was great. Really appreciate your time. I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you so much. All right. You have a good night. Thanks. Well, that was a great conversation with Craig. Next up is Blaze Bailey, formerly of Iron Maiden. Subscribe so you don't miss it. Rock on!